I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate the style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode one of season two, featuring special guest Barbara Stengel. Folk Phenomenology is generously supported by Whip and Stock Publishers, Voice and Truth, from Biblical Studies to Classic Theology, Poetry to Philosophy, our authors are experts, scholars, and artists. St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, nurturing the dialogue between Christians and the life of the academy and that of larger society. Give us this day daily prayer for today's Catholic, Solidarity Hall, Eden plus Utopia, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, U.S. Catholic, Faith and Real Life, Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos. To support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and leave a review or drop a tip. You can also follow Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Barb, welcome to Folk Phenomenology. Sam, it's good to be here, and it's good to uh, see you, at least over the airwaves. That's right. Um, it is good to see you. We usually see each other about once a year at the Philosophy <laughs> of Education Society uh, conference. I suppose maybe that's a place where we might um, begin, because to my recollection, I was thinking about it this morning, I, I think the first interaction... And, and I may embarrass myself because maybe there's something I'm, I'm leaving out in my memory. But my recollection is one is the first interaction we had was in a, a, a paper session on William James, where I uh, made the claim that James was this, you know, completely not a behaviorist, basically. And uh, after the, the session, you actually walked up and said, really? I mean, he's kind of a behaviorist, isn't he? Um, and, uh, and I don't know. I just recall that really fondly uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but um, uh, did, do I, did I get that right? Are you recalling what I'm recalling? I don't remember anything before that, Sam. And I do remember that conversation in part because it's a conversation that I have fairly frequently with a lot of people. Um, because I, I do think that the, the philosophers, some of the philosophers that you and I care a lot about, like William James, um, bring to us a kind of, um, well, well, what I would call social behaviorism. There, there, there are um, 
stimuli and reinforcements. But what's interesting about the social behaviorism of a William James or a John Dewey or some of the other pragmatists is that they um, you can't tell what's the stimulus until you get the response. And it's the response that makes the stimulus. So there there is that um, there is a, a sense of reinforcement, but it cannot be understood outside of the whole of the experience. And that's the sense in which I would say that James is, in fact, a behaviorist. And I think you see it in the way he thinks about um, emotion in particular when he talks about emotion and says, um, you, you just can't tell what this emotion is until after you get its, as he would say, cash value until you see what it comes to mean in people's lives. So, yeah, I remember that. And I think um, I think we we had a good conversation about it. And it sounds like it stuck with you, at least as something that you probably needed to think more about. Yeah, you know, I, I do agree about the um, uh, about that, in particular with an American philosophy, there seems to be a um, a lack of inhibition about what I would call a kind of soft determinism, right? Mm. The idea that there are certain patterns or certain feedback loops in operation and that the issue is not so much whether they exist or not, but the scale at which we understand them. And I think the whole of experience, what Dewey referring to James called that double-barreled sense of, of, of things um, is the appropriate scale, they would argue, but we don't have to lose at some level the, uh, uh, the finitude in a way of, of that. And I think an, another sort of worry or issue or something that it comes along with that is the whole idea of control, mm. external control. So people associate behaviorism with certain kinds of external controls that are dehumanizing, inhuman. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, for, for pragmatists, but also I think for lots of folks, um, lots of the folks that you cite in curriculum theory it, throughout the 20th century, we've come to understand that agency and control are much more complex and much richer than typically thought of. Control is not domination. Control, there has to be control, but the question is what kind of control and what quality of control and to what extent it's self-control rather than imposed by another. Or the control, the law of the situation, as Mary Parker Follett would say, there's, there, or what the known demands, as Dewey said later in life. Absolutely. I am, um, it's so, it's so interesting. I, I'm, I often teach that really short chapter in experience and education um, on social control. Mm -hmm. And it, it's one of the chapters that I won't gloss. It's one of the chapters that we have to open our books to the right page and start reading verbatim so that so that people can almost witness with their own eyes that Dewey, the great progressivist, you know, and whatnot, is clearly here advocating not only for self-control and a kind of sense of discipline, but also for a kind of institutional responsibility. And in that case, a yeah. kind of institutional yeah. um, control. And he says it through the failure of what he's, I think he's clearly talking about the free schools, right, um, of his time, um, their failure to instill these kinds of manners as he talks about in people. Um, 
Yeah, that's just that's just silly. I mean, one of the things I don't know if Dewey says this anywhere explicitly, but one of the things that's going on in the world is there's a game being played between the young and the old. And it is the job of the young to cross the line. But it is the job of the older, I won't say old, older (laughs) to hold the line and and adults in terms of curriculum, in terms of behavior, in terms of whatever it is, have to have some norms. They have to have some lines. Now, when the kids cross the lines, you don't get all bent out of shape. You don't get angry with them or judge them or whatever. You just hold the line. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, sometimes they get away with crossing the line and sometimes we overdo it. But there is that game going on. And so, of course, there's some kind of control. But, and this is the important but, it's in the service of the kids, the young, being able to act responsibly, right. able to respond yeah. with self-control, with some kind of self-control and some kind of intention as they mature. And so it's it's just another example for me of the pragmatists, um, you know, rejecting binaries of a sure. certain simplistic kind yeah. in order to say, of course, the people who talk about control are right. Of course, the people who talk about freedom are right. Right. Now, how do we think about those things yes. in conjunction with each other? Yes. And to uh, to, to the listener who, who just jumped right in here, uh, Barb and I just, just sprinted uh, to the question of, the, uh, of whether we are free or whether we are determined or wh- the question of, of to what extent are things... Uh, conceived human things, at least, and and our liberty and our freedom of movement and our freedom of thought, and to what degree are those things constrained by external factors and also by authority and whatnot. Um, whenever we're talking about this uh, in this way, I have two two thoughts: one more immediate, and another one further down the line. Uh, Aquinas uh, has this idea of the dominus sui. Dominus sui, basically meaning self, well, meaning self-domination. What what it means um, is essentially the capacity of the will to exercise control over itself, um, mm-hmm. to to dominate oneself, right? And I agree with you rhetorically. Obviously, control in the sense we're talking about is not domination in its political modern sense. But in this kind of medieval idea, I've often thought and, and even argued that the Dominus Sui anticipates the autonomous subject of, mm-hmm. of liberalism, which will come out later. Um, well, and you could, it, stretching the translation really a lot, I admit, but thinking of lord of oneself, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a different, that's not domination. Mm-hmm. That's um, autonomy and responsibility wrapped into one. Right. Now, I'm sure you and I are both hyper aware that, you know, liberalism, uh, in particular, that autonomous subject of liberalism has been, you know, kicked around the block quite a few centuries, rightfully so, I would say many times mm-hmm. over. My particular favorite is Shelley's Frankenstein, where she kicks the romanticism's critique of liberalism's autonomous and still too autonomous subject all over the place you know we're about to read the 1818 
version of that manuscript in my mm. uh, ethics class coming up. So that's one of my favorites. But obviously, people have had a field day in the 20th century. I sometimes feel, and I don't know if you feel this way or not, um, that, that maybe we have uh, forgotten a little bit about why autonomy is important, perhaps. Um, what do you think? Well, the, the, the problem with autonomy is that it gets... It resides in a version of individualism mm -hmm. that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I said autonomy and responsibility. Yes. And of course, with responsibility, I mean the capacity to respond to uh, the other and to the situation um, in, in rich and meaningful ways. I, th I think the big error is... And again, this is kind of a pragmatist move, but the error is not the focus on autonomy. It's that autonomy got put into a particular individual yes. acting alone in the world. Yes. And yes, that individual was white male Christian or whatever it might be. Sure. But in addition to that, the idea that that person is acting alone and that that makes no sense at all. I mean, if the 20th century has taught us anything, it's that we um, we understand ourselves as sort of radically social. Now, exactly what that means, we can parse out and we can talk about different theories of it. But I think you have to say, no, there is no such thing as that autonomous individual, even when we take existentialism to be saying something important. And yes. I think they are. I don't yes. want to, you know, I don't want to deny the width of truth that comes from uh, a Sartre or, or a, um, Simone de Beauvoir or whatever. We are, we are constructing ourselves in a yes. certain kind of way, but always in the context of these other things. So I think it's the individualism, the atomistic individualism mm -hmm. that's the problem with autonomy. And no, I don't want to run from autonomy at all. I think, I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the things that gives people a kick. It, yeah. it generates energy. It, sure. And when you add, when you put autonomy with responsibility, then you have the energy of I can do what I can do. Mm -hmm. But as a um, as one of the teachers I was working with um, in a school in Nashville, and I'm now doing a podcast called Chasing Bailey around this, um, the story of this school, but they had a public presentation one day and somebody was asking them, well, what, what is the story about teacher leadership? And what she said was, we can make mistakes and we can fix them. Mm. That was the crux of the matter. So the point mm. is not that if you act autonomously, you're going to be right. Mm -hmm. As often as not, you'll be wrong. Mm -hmm. But then you have, then you take responsibility and you have the opportunity to act again hopefully coming closer to something that will, you know, solve your problem or respond richly to other people. Absolutely. I mean, to me, um, we can have a social concept of autonomy and I've argued somewhat idiosyncratically, maybe that the sociality of autonomy can even be found on the inside of the person that within ourselves, mm -hmm. there are many selves within ourselves. Mm -hmm. There is a poly, mm -hmm. there's a polis, right? And, this is a pretty old school, you know, Plato's analogy between mm -hmm. the, the, the city and the soul and all that stuff. But I think I think it matters a lot because when we lose that social 
and even what we might say political sense of interiority, we lose two things. We lose the interiority of the person, but we also lose uh, and give give away, I think, fairly freely that plurality to a kind of atomism that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm really well, cons- even Hannah well, Arendt kind of well, makes yeah. that point oh, yeah. um, talking about, you know, our reflecting within ourselves on ourselves and our political responsibility and others. So I think I think your point is well taken. The difference with you is that you 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 will go to those classical um, exponents of those kinds of thinking, whether it's through your Catholicism or through your um, study of ancient philosophy or whatever it is, where other people might start with, you know, folks who are more contemporary. Sure, sure. I think that timeline is important because you know it's it's funny. It's a, a it's it becomes a signature over a period of time, right? Like where. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a weird maybe story, but I remember years ago, I think it was 2015 in Memphis where someone read a paper anonymously and I guess it's citational sources or what have you had a lot of people approaching me, asking me if it was my paper. And it kind of, kind of really bothered me to be honest, because it wasn't actually. Um, And also what the paper was saying were things that I don't think I would say. But people kind of picked up on the references or whatever and said, this sounds like a Sam Mm -hmm. uh, paper. Um, What are the references or the signatures you feel make a Barb paper? Ooh, okay. Now, let me start by acknowledging that as far as I'm concerned, we are all Platonists. We are all Kantians. (laughs) There are just some things that we can't peel off. Sure. And, and, and to be honest with you, I would put Catholicism in that category. My Catholicism is something I can't peel off no matter what, you know, no matter what else I'm doing or disagreeing with or whatever it might be. Um, and there's plenty. But I, I do think that when you think about um, the core of Plato's Republic, the idea that some people have more worth than others that has infected us Ugh. and it's i'm not saying it's totally false but there are circumstances in which that is a dangerous idea um in, in foucault's terms useful but dangerous um same with kant the idea that we that we follow rules um in a shorthand that's a very good way of describing what people are doing and it may be good a good kind of idea to keep in mind with respect to raising children and or um, some social issues, but it's also dangerous because in fact, it's really not the way that I would argue that, that we make moral decisions. We don't find out what the rule is and then apply it and obey it. I don't think we do that. So I'm just, I just want to acknowledge that all that is in my background and I, you know, that's infecting me whether I want it to or not today. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's anybody who contributes to critical and pragmatist. So obviously that's Dewey and James, but also the women of the time, yeah. uh, Jane Adams and Mary Parker Follett and some others. Um, and it also includes black feminist thought, at least back to Anna Julia Cooper, at least back to the, um, the time of the classical pragmatists. Um, 
more the black feminists than Du Bois or Alain Locke or those folks, although they're probably in there as well. And then moving forward, um, I think the feminist theory, absolutely, and and more recently affect theory, but mm. partly because I've partly because I got turned on to some work of Dewey's around emotion and realized that what folks were doing with affect theory um, made room for Dewey's theory of emotion and James too, but Dewey, I think, um, takes it further than James. And so those are the things that right now, I think I'm probably just trying to make an argument that, um, you know, that experience is always always incorporates thinking, feeling, and doing, mm. and that any concepts we have are not just thinkings, they are feelings and doings, and that any mm. feelings we have imply ideas and actions. Um, and I'm just trying to play with all of that. Hmm. That's really rich. I, I want to maybe share um, something I, I don't think actually is, is very well known, and I've learned a lot from uh, a student of mine, uh, Maria Angelica uh, Guerrero, she did a master's thesis, um, a really great work, which was, which was a work that was, its rigor. There was plenty of rigor in just the the textual and interpretive work, but it came also with the burden of translation, because mm -hmm. the work of um, Maria Zambrano, uh, the Spanish uh, philosopher, uh, colleague, contemporary of Ortega Gasset and Unamuno. Mm -hmm exiled most of her life to Mexico. She um, she was working with Zambrano's work and uh, most of that work is untranslated. So she had to both translate and then interpret in, I, of course, translation's already an interpretation, but I think mm -hmm. people get the point. And her study of Zambrano led her kind of obliquely to a concept in Latin America that I think comes out of uh, uh, some indigenous philosophy in Peru, and, it, and there's a lovely little word that ca that captures it, which is C O co razón R A Z O N R A R corazonar, and corazonar can mean co like together, um, like thinking together, razonar thinking or reasoning together, but corazón of course is heart, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which and then the AR verbs the heart. So the heart becomes hearting or feeling. And you have at least this, and then of course, razón, which is reason and reasoning with the mm -hmm. AR. So you have this like, I think very, um, this word capable of holding together maybe more things than at least in the English, modern American English we're used to. It reminds me of like a German word where they just Scrunch yes. everything together, right? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite German words is Sarissenheit, torn to pieces hood, mm. a word that was coined after World War II to describe, you know, German wow. um, society. And um, and I think a very interesting word that we don't have an analogy for in English to, to talk about a certain human experience. But no, I'm fascinated. I'm writing this down. Now tell me, spell Zambrano for me. Zambrano, Z A. Yeah. M B R A N O. Okay. Yeah. Maria Zambrano. Um, yeah. Our our friend Cristina Camarano. Yes. Uh, is uh, responsible for putting me on to Zambrano. She is um, among 
among among several others in our field, but she's probably the the, the earliest because we were grad students together uh, at mm-hmm. a summer school in the UK, and a constant friend and critic. So if I give a paper that celebrates uh, the personalism of Unamuno, she will, uh, um, you know, treat me well. There was one time where I had a rude chair who cut me <laughs> off whenever I was just responding to my respondent, and I don't know why, and. Christina raised her hand and her question was, could you please finish the thing you were saying before you were so really interrupted, right? Good for um, her. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. So that kind of a friend who then after the session came up and said, really, Sam? Unamuno? Like, it's the, that, that, he's like the most masculinist of mm-hmm. this particular point you're making. Have you read Zambrano? And I hadn't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so she, it was through her um, uh, influence and I would say critical intervention uh, that I was introduced to Zambrano. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. good. And I and I love this this notion of co-rasonar. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of dimensions of that. Yeah, it, it gets to that point you said about peeling or the, mm-hmm. the things you can't peel off. Mm-hmm. And the way that sort of sends me all the way back to the beginning of the sort of, are we fated or are we free? To what extent are we determined, right? But this isn't a behavioral uh, um, input-output feedback loop. We're talking about something deeper, I think. Mm-hmm. The calcified layers. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the sort of sources for me that I failed to um, sort of acknowledge initially is the the fact that I've, in addition to having a background as a raised Catholic, I I uh, have formal study in the area of religion and religious studies and the phenomenology of religion. And, um, you know, that, I think that it's very hard for me to not, um, engage sort of the spiritual dimension. And I use that only as a placeholder because it's going to be something different in depending on what we're talking about. But it, I have to, I have to say that I am, as someone who was is Catholic, but who has also been to witch camp and done a number of other um, <laughs> sort of off the off the path religious and and spiritual um, experiences, that it's it's very hard for me not to see that, not to go there, not to bring that. And so, the purely rational um, is very difficult for me to take seriously. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm having a an exchange with Harvey Siegel right now about a really wonderful paper he wrote, excuse me, about argumentation and argument and trying to hold on to a a clear sense of argument as abstract propositions sort of arranged in a way that can be taken seriously. And I don't want to dispute that either. I don't want to let go of that. Sure. At the same time, I just always want to say, okay, but what, what have you just left me with? What does this give me that touches? And this is, I'm going back to what you were saying about sort of touches the heart, um, touches the stories that one lives by the, the ways one understands oneself in the world. And it's just hard for me to do that. I mean, I can do it. I've been trained to do it. I can, I think I can engage in a good conversation, but after a while I want to say, yeah, but who cares? Yes. I mean, um, when one of the things that, that really woke me up uh, in, in a really great way, 
but also forced me to reconsider some of my just pretty much at the time just basically provincial assumptions was reading James's varieties of religious experience and realizing that this pseudo Swedenborgian agnostic psychologist very sick um, guy is obsessed with Catholic saints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, page after page after page of mystics and Teresa of Avila and, and, you know, um, and, uh, and as a Catholic, my initial um, assumption was this is common ground, right? That this is, we can, uh, but then I even said, I think he takes them more seriously than I do from his non-devotional, I would say phenomenological. He just wants to understand the phenomena or the, the manifestation of their piety, of their devotion, of their feeling, right? And I, as someone who encountered them through a devotional lens, almost was robbed of an appreciation <laughs> of the sort of bare phenomenology of this human capacity to 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 be and to live religiously or spiritually as you might say mm -hmm. um for me that was like that it, it's it's strange because on the one hand i think it made me feel an enormous amount of humility that i hadn't quite felt at the hands of someone who wasn't also a Catholic. I was used to, you know, people of great piety, the saints, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they humble you and you say, oh, wow, I'm not holy because I'm not like Saint so-and-so or such and such. Whereas in this case, James is like mm -hmm. not remotely Catholic. I mean, he, he says, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a most Protestant Protestant. He says I'm in a letter <laughs> once. But, you know, uh, people always wonder, what's Sam's thing with James, you know? But the goofy thing is James probably had as much to do as anyone I can think of to making me um, appreciate my faith, not for its identity or for its club mm -hmm. or for even the the warmth of my ancestral, you know, Mexican Catholic thing and, and that kind of folklore. But he actually allowed me to appreciate religion qua religion. In a, in a new and, po and powerful way. I don't know. I, I think this resonates across us here, but I, I'm yeah. curious to see what you think. Well, there are a couple of things that you're making me think about. One is most religions don't have this archive of religious practice that Catholics have in the lives of the saints. Now you can call it whatever you want to. And of course, I'm making reference to a specific book, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we have all these stories that of these people who lived a certain understanding of religious faith and not always the same understanding of religious faith, That's and right. they didn't live it in the same way. Now, is that because there is something about Catholicism that allows people to, to address um, not just the practice of the, of the religion, but also the, um, the movement of the heart, you know, is, um, and then, or, or is it just that the Catholics sanctify people? And so, you know, so we have a list and the list has stories and, and I don't know the answer to that, but it is interesting that there is this archive. Where else could James have gone 
if he wanted an archive of religious practice. Sure. The, no other traditions that I know of have quite this listing. Mm. This whole crowd of people. Now, now you're we making me think data. of something. Yeah, right. We had the, we had the data. Um, <laughs> did you happen to catch the article by Annie Lamott in um, the New York Times yesterday, I think, or the day before, about why she doesn't want um, uh, coaches praying on the 50-yard line? No, you ought I'm to read a Sunday it. edition subscriber, so no. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you ought to try to find this. It's, okay. It's really good. Um, and it's quirky Annie Lamont. I mean, she's, sure. you know, she has a certain view of religion, but she, she's a Christian. I mean, she thinks she's sure. gone to heaven or wants to go to heaven yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. she just makes it very clear why she doesn't want people praying on the 50 yard line. And I, I think it's, um, we need more Annie Lamotts in the world to allow us to, to really, um, Annie Lamotts and William James, to allow us to appreciate the, what, what our religious practice stories, motivations, because we all have them in one way or another, even people who are atheists. I mean, there's a, there's a set of practices, a set of beliefs, a set of feelings that, that are tied together and into these, what I referred to before as stories we live by. I mean, we've, we've got them. Yeah, no. And, and I think that um, one maybe the, the 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 rationalist move is to say but they're not all true and they're disputable and they're uh, and i think that at some level the, the it's sort of beside the point <laughs> um, <laughs> right right you know the the other uh, direction though and maybe this rubs on the whole you know inevitable kantianism of things but we haven't used the e word and I, I often uh, try to resist and delay, you know, using it. Uh, but inevitably, someone, especially working in a faculty of education, is going to, you know, say, how is all this stuff you've been talking about have anything whatsoever to do with education? And, you know, mm -hmm. the glib professional answer, I think, from most philosophers of education is, well, look more closely and realize we've been talking about education the whole time. But I wonder, it, to, just to be clear, for, for those who may not relate to that particular easy move, we are talking about a kind of religious education that is not mm -hmm. the UK <laughs> curriculum question, nor is the catechetical inside group question here. But I've often thought that we have a very impoverished range of talking about what we mean as religious education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like and, we're talking about it here. Yes, I think you're right. And I think actually this Annie Lamott piece might help to okay. make that point for a lot yeah. of people if they weren't sure about it. Um, you know, it, Horace Mann in his 12th report to those people in Massachusetts, yeah. one of his categories of purpose in education okay. was religious. And yeah. he wasn't, if you read it, he's not, you know, it's not about reading the Bible. It's not about um, simply being a good Christian. It is a sense of oneself in the world in the face of something other, something bigger, something better. Huh. Um, and again, this is the phrase Annie Lamott uses, you know, what I'm not. 
that's God can just be what I'm not. Huh. But um, I, I do think the idea that we could educate a child without directly addressing questions of religious practice and religious faith is ludicrous. <laughs> it's, it's not, of course we have to talk about it. You can't talk about the crusades or the city shining city on the hill, or you can't talk about history without talking about religion. You can't talk about politics right now. We can't talk about politics without no, talking about religion. And it, and it, we need a, um, a really careful and insightful and non judgmental phenomenological, if you will, uh-huh. description of what are the things that are pulling on people's hearts and what are the pe- things that are pulling on their feet right now yeah. to make them do certain kinds of things. And that the, to walk away from that is to leave that space for the crazies, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the nuts. Uh, I recently had to edit uh, my manuscript. I was referring to this particular group uh, to said I should use the word nut jobs, not nuts, because oh, it would be God. taken literally as walnuts. And so I was like, yeah, uh-huh. okay, good. Uh-huh. Let's yeah, clarify yeah. my insult. Um, so I do worry, you know, I invite different kinds of guests on folk phenomenology. Uh, in some cases, we are meeting for the very first time. And that's always an interesting phenomenological experiment. That 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 first manifestation, that first appearance, one uh, you know, one to another, face to face, albeit digitally. But you know, uh, but then in other cases, invite people I've known for a long time. And in and in the cases of how I curate that, I'm not even sure that I can give a full apologia or rationale for it. It's pretty intuitive, um, and I feel like the. The people I invite kind of get that too when they when they know me. Um, I'm saying all this to say that like I don't want to run this episode into just a choir preaching uh, side. So I want to consider like the 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 question of of needing religious education and and the question of kneeling and praying, you know, on the on the football field and whatnot through the lens of you know without cheapening religion like you just said uh without giving it away to you know the crazies or what have you um couldn't there be a kind of caution nonetheless which i'm guessing this this article talks about um like for instance in the gospels christ actually doesn't just say pray or how to pray he also says do not pray like the hypocrites um so there's both instruction on on how to pray there is certainly um uh exhortation that we ought to pray um and there's example he leaves to go pray but there is also uh teaching uh very clear teaching on don't pray like this don't fast like this right Mm -hmm. and um i often wonder about this in the context of religion in schools and public religion or what have you if there's almost like a loss of of the reverence and and the mystical presence of something whenever we honor its absence like mm-hmm. i often think the most prayerful things we could prayerful thing we could do in schools is not pray because then we'll allow for prayer to you know come out the other thought i had though is that like 
there are needs or desires, I think, that at least speak intuitively. Like uh, Freud has that lovely expression of the oceanic feeling mm -hmm. and civilization, it's discontents of being in the middle of the ocean and just feeling, he says it's as close as he can get to a sense, to a God feeling, right? And my worry here, and this is the more pointed point, is there are a lot of people, religious or not, who know enough about the human condition to know and name this kind of feeling and who then use that affective, intuitive thing to launch into full-blown culture war or to seduce those who share that feeling and then build a kind of insider-outsider you know, thing. I'm thinking right now, I can't stop thinking about Jordan Peterson and what he's doing with this kind of pop psychology, Jungian, you know, stuff. Some, a critic might say, isn't this just what Jordan Peterson is doing these days, offering meaning and substance and, and what have you. Um, uh, so that, that my, I, I am worried about that, frankly. And it does sometimes even prevent me maybe from talking about things like prayer in schools, like you were talking about. How about you? Um, I think the phrase all things considered is rumbling in my head. And I think that the difficulty is when one gets into the domain of not just religion, of history, of politics, is the selectivity that gets applied without acknowledgement or consciousness. So, and the selectivity that can very often be associated with a kind of unacknowledged privilege, whether that privilege is intellectual or um, social or cultural or economic or whatever it might be. And so, you know, Dewey once said the problem, you know, the solution for democracy is more democracy. I mean, yeah. if you get in trouble with democracy, just get more democracy going. And I would, I would sort of say the same thing with religion that, you know, right. the problem is not the religion, but that it's there's not enough of it. We don't have points of comparison. We are not <laughs> um, carefully um, we are not willing to look with care mm. at not just the um, I'm thinking of the very distorted message of Christianity offered by Doug Mastriano, who is running for governor in this state of Pennsylvania, where I now right, sit. Right, right. Frightening. Um, it would be funny to have a conversation between Doug Mastriano and Annie Lamott, I think, um, both of whom would claim to be Christian. I think sure. it might be enlightening. Um, but I I worry that um, I do worry about all of this. But I I also worry about a failure to seek truth. And I'm not I'm not a truth with a capital T person in the sense that I don't think that that truth is necessarily available to you or me or sure. any of us. I think there very well might be truth with a capital T somewhere, but it's not a truth that is available to humans as we now understand ourselves. Will it be someday? I have no idea. I'm not, I don't trade in that kind of thing. Sure. Nonetheless, we can get at truths that is things that are have warranted assertability, as Dewey would say, that that can that can be held dear in communities of thought and practice and love um, and that can persist over time, not relativism, but something that persists over time. Uh -huh. And I think we have to be looking for that. And 
and once you stop, once you say, I have found the truth, we're in trouble when yeah. it comes to education. Yeah. So that's my worry with respect to religion in schools in mm-hmm. particular is the people who will say, well, here's the truth. Yeah. Um, and I don't care whether you're teaching history or teaching religion. If you say, here's the truth, then we've stopped education. We've stopped mm-hmm. growth. And then we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So I, I think, um, yes, I worry as you do. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. would I, would I trust Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania to implement a program of religious education in our schools? Jesus, no. Yeah. But, um, yeah. You make me, you make me remember though. Um, and I, I, this is actually what I, what I need to hear right now in the midst of the, the news cycle. Tacitus has this really cool, uh, story he tells of a general who brings peace to an unruly province. And, uh, and he brings peace to the unruly province by killing all of its citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has this famous uh, Latin dictum of like, you, 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 um, yeah. you, you call it peace, but you bring desolation or something like that. Um, and to me, I think like for those who have a substantive view and account of religion yet see the things we're seeing now, one reasonable temptation uh, is to is to just choose desolation. Like I'll give up my religion if we can just have some measure of peace. And I think that your your point about you know democracy and religion is is uh, a sobering uh, reminder that that is probably uh, not the the answer, but I am interested in democracy because I am a recovering misanthrope, right? So I, I went through my juvenile phase, probably due to my formation, where democracy was uh, seen as a bit passe. I was probably really influenced, frankly, by the Bush years and the spreading democracy around the world stuff. Recently, I've come into contact with the 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 full-blown etymological sense of democracy as people power demos gratos and it's kind of reinvigorated my appetite for democracy um and it's given me more i I haven't read a lot of dewey since i've had that renaissance that democratic renaissance in my heart but i'm more excited now to read dewey on democracy Mm. whereas to be honest before i used to roll my eyes a bit but how do you think about democracy how does it make sense to you well, I, I mean, I, I do think that I think about democracy the way I think about labor unions. Um, it's the worst thing except for all the others. Sure. Um, democracy is the worst form of government except for anything else we have tried to do. And with respect <laughs> to labor unions, the only thing that's worse than no, than a labor union is no labor, no labor union. union. I mean, you got to have that in order to have the, the dialogue and the interaction and the dialectic and all of it. Um, I, I do think that democracy is, again, a useful but dangerous idea, and it is subject to perversion. I would say the same thing about capitalism. Um, huh. there, are, there are useful things about capitalism. I'm not sure. particularly a socialist. I don't think that socialism, I think that's useful but dangerous. Sure. Um, but when we think about democracy, what it 
What I think it affords us is some vehicle or vessel for carrying what we were talking about before, these ideas of autonomy, collaboration, responsibility, collectivity, um, the understanding of the law of the situation or the context, recognizing that there is always consistency that is worth defending, huh. but but not to the death. You know, you, you want consistency. We don't want to be waving back and forth in the wind. At the same time, everything that we everything that we do, at least in principle, is subject to reconstruction, to critique, but not all at once. So what democracy does is it lets us have a kind of continuity, a kind of consistency that is still subject to the possibility of critique and reconstruction. And of course, so is education. Something that gives us, you know, of course we teach, you know, four-year-olds not to run into the street and we teach um, six-year-olds to count and read in certain kinds of ways. Of course we do that, but that is all in the service of later on being able to say, that's not what I want, or that's not what I think. Um, and citing Arendt, that the natality of that, the newness of those people entering our um, our society is what, which is what has a revivifying effect. I'm using Jane Adams' word there, but yeah. um, and I think about Arendt's quote about education. Education is that moment when we decide we love the world enough to both maintain it and renew it. And th- that's yeah. not a direct quote, but that's the idea yeah, yeah, that yeah. She, she offers us. And it's it's this, again, this adult thing about, okay, we're going to hold the line, but we're not going to get bent out of shape when the kids realize that what we've offered them can in fact be better, can be huh. different in a in a positive way. Gosh, that, that just lights me up um, for a number of reasons. And I think I'm going to violate decorum because of it. Um, I think no, no, just because just because like, look, I, I, I think there's an accessibility factor and a, and a popular demand factor or whatever. But like, uh, instead of playing good critic, good interviewer, philosophy of education, I've come as a participant in the field um, to find is maybe among the best kept secrets, uh, uh, the worst best kept secrets and um, of, of of educational discourse and popular grounds, you know, um, and we we attend these meetings, you know, and we have these conversations and we have uh, uh, a set of uh, vocabulary and of references that we can share and, and but with each other, um, the world oftentimes is just shocked by the schooling education distinction. And, and it's just like, oh, and, and you never get beyond the, the sort of uh, the awe and wonder with this like very minuscule little drop of the field. Um, so on, so to me, philosophy of education, we both identify as philosophers of education. We both work in, in this field, but you, unlike me, have seen it in its historical context and its institutional context. This is where I'm violating the decorum. You've been the president of, of the oh. philosophy of education society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the field as a scholar, uh, 
within the professoriate, but also institutionally. I, I wonder if you could, you know, I don't want to abuse your time, but if, if we could uh, take a bit of, of time to sort of baptize the podcast in this field that has kind of been on the periphery of season one and people kind of know this about me and know it's what I do for a living and things like that. But I haven't been in conversation where I could actually sort of flex that side of, of who I am. And, and I feel like it's really important though. And there's no one I can think of who I would want more than you to, to maybe bring it out to the front, to the forefront. Well, thank you for that, Sam. And and I think I agree with you. Um, I will say, first of all, that I can't believe somebody paid me for 40 years to do this work. It's yeah. like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'm yeah, so excited about it. And I was able, um, because of the kinds of positions I was in, was able to combine my work as a philosopher of education with work in schools, um, with teachers, with principals, with kids. And 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 as a result, my um, I mean, I am a pragmatist and I'm a pragmatist because I come at philosophy in part, at least I come at philosophy from this point of view of, OK, people are trying to do this. They are trying to make the commitment Arendt talks about and it's not easy. And how is it going and how are they doing it? Um, but the field, I think. There are there are a lot of different kinds of people working in philosophy of education. Some people are able to spend all of their time thinking about, like Harvey Siegel, thinking about things like argument as rational. That's valuable work. It's good work. And it informs things that all of us do. But it's a luxury. As far as I'm concerned, and I think I've said this to Harvey, so I wouldn't be offending him, but he, he has the privilege of doing a certain kind of work that is pristine, if you will. It, it, um, it's, it doesn't always have to be complicated. Now at the other end is somebody like me who has committed to working in schools and there's nothing pristine about that work. Philosophy comes to that work as a, as a way of sense-making. It's a, um, and, and, the capacity that I have, because I have studied philosophy of education, to bring Plato or Aristotle or Aquinas or Rousseau or Locke or whoever it is to that conversation, simply allows me to give people names for their experience. I can offer them a theory or an idea and they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what we were thinking about. Um, and then feel empowered by having a language that we can then, you know, use as a shorthand um, about all of that's going on. Then there are a lot of us in the philosophy of education society who are somewhere in between me and Harvey, and not just me and Harvey, but you get the idea. Oh, I get who it. Are, I get it. Who, who are looking at educational questions, but very often from a step removed um, from, you know, not 30,000 feet, but maybe 10,000 feet. I mean, we're, uh -huh. we're not in the middle of it. We're asking some questions and there's a value in all of that too. But the question becomes, how does what we know enter the thought and the practice and the rhetoric of the folks who are actually on the ground and doing the work? And what I'm pretty convinced of is it's not application. You can't take ideas that Sam Rocha has 
and then take that idea and apply it to, um, you know, some question in education. That's not it. There's got to be another another way. And again, this is why I like how the pragmatists come at things, because you are always responding to something in the world, only partly of your own making that you have yeah. to interpret and respond to. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's useful. And I think that matches up with the way educators think. So then our ideas, the philosophy of education becomes part of their, as, as practitioners, as policymakers, as researchers. And I don't know how, if you have found this, we're in slightly different academic positions, but I found at Vanderbilt, I was in a department of researchers. I was the only philosopher of education, uh. but I was invited to be on many doctoral committees Yeah, because yeah. everybody needs a philosopher of yeah. education. Yes. They don't want to be one and yes. they don't want to um, do only that, but they yes. need somebody who's going to ask conceptual questions and say, and prior questions, you know, yes, but, and how are you using this? And what are you saying about that? And have you thought about this alternative theoretically? Um, and so that's been, you know, that's been great fun. And I think it's a fun for me, but I think, I think generally speaking, helpful for the people the researchers, both faculty members and doctoral students that I've worked with. So I think there is a, I think there's a hunger out there for philosophy of education yeah. that people can't even name. And I do, I don't, I'm going to shut up and let you talk, but no, no, no. Um, did you see the thing recently on the, the report in Great Britain on the quality, the, in Europe, they do things like report on the quality of educational David research Aldridge sharing the report. Yes. Yeah, I saw that. Yes. <laughs> and the best we do well educational research metrics. is philosophy of education. That's the stuff that is most useful that which everybody would say, well, that's philosophy. That's not useful. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, this is again, this is a bit um, uh, we're, we're singing in unison here. Um, but my experience matches yours, especially on the whole dissertation thing. Sometimes I'm shocked uh, at the stuff I get invited to uh, to be an external reviewer on. I also think of the tools and the skills. And I, um, two quick things is you've really convinced me here that my Augustinianism, my sense of, of I always say like I'm, I'm a Franciscan because I'm an Augustinian, but like those are kind of the two pieces that hold together my kind of Catholic worldview or what have you. Um, a lot of it's because of that thing I called soft determinism and that Augustine says we have to take seriously the things that are external, the things that are out of our control, the times, you know, the seculum, as you would say. Um, and he doesn't try to get apolitical because of it. He doesn't use mystical excuses to get out of it, you know. And so it's funny, I like I'm realizing that my uh, affinity for pragmatism was probably primed by my uh, <laughs> love of Augustine. Yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. bit of little did you know. Yeah, yeah. I never would have actually under because I've always been kind of like mystified at like why I also like American pragmatism. Um, that putting that aside, though, um, I think it's also the skills and the tools uh, that, that we are capable of bringing, yeah. um, in particular teachers who maybe it's not an obvious thing, but to be told 
if you're handed a curriculum or a set of guidelines or a policy or a memorandum from your principal, you can apply the same tools of textual analysis, of interpretation, of close reading. You can respond using the same tools of argumentative writing, uh, um, you know, the good old syllogism or whatever it takes to empower yourself as a teacher on behalf of not only yourself as a teacher, but in particular your students. Um, and I think that that has been kind of my go-to apologia for the sometimes what people may see as hyper classical, um, mm. you know, things I really force people to do through these kind of constrained little uh, exercises of control, uh, but not domination, hopefully, in my classroom. I, I, I know you have a little a further yeah. in terms of tools, um, yeah. Sam, to suggest that if we can if we can help folks internalize the what I consider to be the best tools of philosophers that are language analysis, phenomenological analysis, pragmatist inquiry, huh. and deconstruction huh. of narratives, and then and then interpretation generally, hermeneutics. Sure, sure. So if you think about those five things, and of course there's overlap in them, I'm not sure, trying to suggest sure, that sure. they are totally distinguishable, but when you think about it, as you said, with policymakers, with teachers, with researchers, what are the what's the terminology that you're using? Yeah. And what does that terminology allow and not allow? And that requires some straightforward linguistic analysis. Um, and and everybody can do it. It's not yeah. like it's a you know, it's not like it's a secret formula or something. No. The same thing with phenomenological analysis. It's a similar kind of analysis, but it sends you not to words and sentences but to experience what is right. what is it to to feel the spiritual that wave that you're talking about or what is it to know that you are growing yeah. what what might growth be yeah. um how can i recognize it as a teacher and how can i know it in myself as the learner the student um so we have the language where we're looking at the words we have the phenomenology where we're looking at the experience we have inquiry where we're trying to solve something that if not a problem is at least a scratch huh. we're trying to say you know an itch what is uh -huh. it what is it that's bugging me that i have to you know do something about we have from from various post theories we have a kind of deconstruction we we know that we have to be able to take the stories that are guiding our thought and open them up defeat them so as to allow understanding. And then, of course, there are all the practices of hermeneutics, um, Gadamer, whoever you want to cite, recur, whoever you want to cite there. And these are the things that we're doing as philosophers all the time, and they are not mysterious. They are actually pretty straightforward. And to the extent that we can share those with people who are trying to do the practice. They don't spend all the time developing their capacity to use these tools, but they can employ them without question. Absolutely. Um, that is, that is like a, a, a like a, a, I gave like a bud of a flower and you gave a bouquet. Uh, <laughs> it's really, it's no, it's really beautiful as we, um, kind of move things through, uh, there's so many specific things you've talked about in a in a meaningful and substantive way and frankly 
um, during previous waves of the same reoccurring cycles of culture war and news stuff and everything. And so without getting too like, you know, into the weeds or what have you, um, I wondered if maybe uh, we could get your your thoughts on the um, the space of education, the space of philosophy of education, the classroom, the school. And in particular, you have thought at length and argued for a complexity around this notion of the safe space. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, of course, a perennial uh, discussion. It interfaces with uh, issues of identity. I think these days we, I know I am on the one hand uh, still in principle opposed to things like we might call identity politics or what have you, but on the other hand, more and more aware and conscientized towards um, places where identity can help to build a space that maybe I don't want to be safe per se, but that I still want to be wholesome and good and 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 what have you. Um, these days, uh, there is a discourse outside that says that, you know, us professor types are all of one view and have a, a ideological conforming idea about this. You and I know that's not true, but they often don't get to the to drill down into the layers of actual thoughtfulness and the complexities of of thinking through just what does it mean to gather freida says that we can't have revolution uh until we have communion with the people right and to me the 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 what matters about a pedagogical space is that it's a place for that to happen it's a place for people for persons to gather and to enter into communion with each other whether it's through dialogue whether it's through transcendental meditation whether it's through music i don't particularly care about the the, the particulars, it's that universal. Um, that's my position to put my cards on the table. I, I, could you talk us through maybe some of the thoughts you might make reference to some of them or maybe your views have changed since then, I don't know. No, Sam, I, I, I'm actually glad that you brought up that work around safe space because I, I do think I'm, I'm paying particular attention in the educational world and in the social world at large to questions of fear and security. Mm. Um, it, it seems to me, um, and hope to be spending more time thinking about this, but it seems to me that, um, much of the craziness that we are seeing is, is, is a result of fear and, or a lack of secure sense of oneself, um, and I don't mean individualistic, but the sense of oneself in the world as a person of value, as a person who has something to offer and whose offering is accepted and and valued. Um, and I think what what I tried to do in that work on safe space was to say, look, folks, of course we want people to be safe, but it's not possible for us to create safe space for everybody at the same time and still, well, under any circumstances, but especially in the context of democracy, democratic interaction. Um, there's, And so how do we build, one of the questions is, how do we build the sense of security that makes it okay to be at least a little unsafe? And I would argue too that education really is about 
making you a little unsafe. What I am doing is I am taking you off the couch and I'm pulling you into some kind of engagement with something that is not just sitting there watching your usual TV shows. I am asking you to be differently, to think differently, to at least entertain these ideas and these experiences. And that's that can be, for some people, decidedly unsafe. And if you don't already have some sort of baseline sense of security, um, then you are prey to politicians who lie to you, who say, oh, yeah, I'm for you, but in fact have policies that don't provide any kind of security, any kind of economic or social support to people. Um, So I'm really interested in fear and security right now. With respect to schools, though, the one thing I would say is that philosophers of education cannot be politically naive right now. We are, the the situation is somewhat different in Canada, but in the U.S. at least, education, schooling is a political football and it is an intentionally political football. There have been folks for the last 40 years, and I've been saying it the whole time, who have been trying to take over public schooling, partly in order to defeat it because they, they favor, they say they favor some sort of, um, free market system of schooling, which is, I mean, oh my God, let's not even, we can't even go there today. But um, so, so philosophers of education who try to ply their trade without acknowledging political realities are not going to be helpful. They're just not helpful, which is one of the reasons why I worked in a, a school called Bailey STEM Magnet Middle School in Nashville in 2012 through 16, and why I'm now doing a podcast about that school, because it is a place where all the teachers and all the kids felt safe. And these were kids, this was the worst school in the state of Tennessee, and these were kids who were literally traumatized, lived in public housing where people got shot, I'd say, weekly, um, lots of food insecurity, lots of housing insecurity, all those things. And they, the kids came to understand this place, this school, as a place where they were safe because the teachers took care of them. But the teachers took care of them because the teachers felt safe in teams valued by the administration in a very interesting kind of way that I still haven't put my finger on exactly how this happened. And some of it, to be honest with you, was that the district didn't pay any attention to them because they just wrote them off and they did eventually close the school, which is part of the story. My point is that the kids at this school were the kids who would and should feel the most insecure, but there were ways of making them be and feel secure, at least in the context of school. And that that's a real question for me right now about schooling post pandemic. You know, how do we address the, the mental health and social and emotional leftovers of a pandemic? I'm not so concerned about learning loss. I think we can catch that up. I am very concerned about how both teachers and students understand themselves in the world right now. And I think we have to be thinking about fear and security um, and the ways in which people would feel fearful 
and the ways in which we can create conditions of security for everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 2, and special thanks to Barbara Stengel. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Whippenstock Publishers, St. Mark's College Center for Christian Engagement, Give Us This Day, Solidarity Hall, Black Catholic Messenger, U.S. Catholic, Commonweal Magazine, and the Juan Diego Network. Be sure to see the show notes for links to our sponsors. Also, please share this episode and subscribe on your favorite app or platform, and also find Folk Phenomenology on Twitter and Facebook. Folk Phenomenology is hosted and produced by Sam Rocha, that's me, with a soundtrack by Aaron Ross Hansen. Now go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't know the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there, and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. Mm-hmm. It's where you find it. Mm-hmm. It's where you find it. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through the eyes of our ears. We see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.